Conspiracies The Paranormal UFO Sightings And All Things Strange Check out all of our wonderful links in the description on The Link Tree Where you can find our Discord Merchandise the Patreon, and so much more. This week's episode, High Frequency Trading. That's right, High Frequency Trading. This one was voted upon by our Patreon subscribers. We've got three tiers for you. The first tier will get you early access and after hours the second tier will get you bonus episodes and the final tier allows you to vote on upcoming topics this time around they chose high frequency trading that's right trading that happens very quickly <laughs> that's all the end oh man i am in my shed nobody else could join me this time apologies this is just agent anderson this week eta is unavailable and ether is also unavailable so I am relegated to the shed in my backyard <laughs> recording, and it is cold out here, guys. My thermometer says 46 degrees. That may not be cold for some of you, but it's cold for me. So if I sound like I'm shivering, I probably am. But let's get to it. What is high-frequency trading? Why is it strange, and why are we talking about it? Well, we're talking about something that happens in the stock market. Other markets as well, but I'm focusing mainly on the stock market. Any market these days generally is going to have high-frequency trading, but it's best known in the stock market. All right, the stock market, where fortunes are made and lost every day. That's right. The idea behind the markets is that it's supposed to be more or less an even playing field. Everybody is supposed to have access to the markets and nobody is supposed to have an unfair advantage because if you have somebody with an unfair advantage, then they can basically just take all the money, right? And whoever else decides to trade in those markets will be robbed by whoever has the unfair advantage. So it's supposed to be a level playing field. This is why things like insider trading is illegal. Although it's not very often prosecuted, it's illegal, incredibly difficult to catch people for it. But that's the idea, is that you're not supposed to trade with insider knowledge because it's unfair to people who don't have that knowledge. It's actually illegal here. Some places it's not, but in the United States, it is. Another thing is that uh, people who work for a company above a certain level like if you're, you know, a vice president or a director or something, if you're higher up in that company, you have to sell your stock on a schedule and that has to be publicly available. You can actually go look up for companies, uh, smaller companies, the data may not be readily available, but for any major company, you can go look up insider trading and you'll see who higher up in the company is buying or selling shares. And that's 
so that those people who are paid mostly in stock options have a chance to cash in those options for an income, but have to do so fairly and they can't necessarily manipulate things to their advantage. Although I'm sure there are ways around that, but still, at least their trades are publicly known. So if somebody, let's say the CEO starts buying more shares, everybody gets to see that information so that we can also buy shares if we think that that's a bullish signal. Bullish being, if you're completely unfamiliar with the stock market, bullish being prices going up, bearish being prices going down. What's the old saying? Bulls run and pigs get slaughtered? I don't know, something like that. <laughs> I read, it, read that in a book somewhere. I don't work on Wall Street. <laughs> market manipulation itself is illegal, and there are many, many ways of doing that. There's all sorts of ways to manipulate the market. Whatever you can imagine, somebody else has already thought of, and more. People are extremely creative with this kind of thing. And it makes you wonder if they had just put their efforts into something else like, you know, I don't know, bettering humanity or something with the amount of effort that goes into this stuff. I don't know. All right. One type of market manipulation, loosely speaking, it's, it's kind of its own thing. It's called front running. Front running. So back in the day, before there were computers or, you know, probably even electricity, who the hell knows, way, way back in the day, orders for stocks were all done manually. You couldn't, you know, click on your computer to order a few shares. You actually had to write the order, walk over to the trading desk, and buy them from somebody in person. If you're a, a trader. If you're not a trader, then you probably had a middleman of some kind, right? So what would happen is if somebody was about to buy a large order, a big chunk of stock, or sell a big chunk of stock, if somebody got wind of that ahead of time and there were people who just hung out waiting to hear this stuff, they would literally run in front of whoever was making the big transaction and make that same transaction or maybe a smaller one, but they would buy a few shares ahead of time so that they can then sell them for a profit at the person who was making their way over to the trading desk to make that purchase. So you're literally running in front of somebody, buying the stocks before they can get there, and then reselling them at a profit. Running in front of them, it's called front running. It gets its name from a very, very literal description. These days, front running is still a thing, but nobody's actually running, of course, because it's all done by computers. So because this, the, so the, the way a modern version might work is that let's say a broker gets a large order from a customer and then that broker or somebody who works for that broker uses a secondary account. Maybe they call up, you know, their mom, or maybe they have an account under their mom's name or something like that. So they, they use a secondary account. They place some orders before the big order can go through. And then once the big order goes through, they make some profits on that. And this is this would be one version of um, of uh, front running that might happen in a modern setting. So it's you're not literally running in front of somebody, but you can still get your orders in ahead of some other big order that you know is going to happen. This is also considered self dealing, also illegal. Front running is illegal. Self dealing is illegal. Market manipulation is e illegal. All of these are illegal because it's supposed to be an even playing field. 
Nobody is supposed to have that big of an advantage over your average investors. Institutional investors, such as mutual funds, pensions, private investment funds, uh, they usually buy in bulk. A normal person like you or me that, you know, we might want to dabble in the stock market. We might put in a hundred bucks. We might even buy a fractional share. We might only buy one share. We might even do $10 or we might do, you know, let's say that we're feeling very good about something when we've got a little bit of extra money in the bank. We might put like 5,000 bucks into a stock, 5,000 bucks. That's crazy. Who does that? That's retail. They call that retail investment. Institutional investors, those are the ones like mutual funds, pensions, big groups. So a mutual fund or a pension, they are investing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, or even millions of dollars at a time. If you think of a big pension for like, let's say the New York City pension, and they have tens of millions of dollars, hundreds of millions of dollars under management, who knows how much, and they want to buy, they want to allocate 5% of their portfolio to, I don't know, a particular company. And if they do that, that's going to be millions and millions of dollars, right? So for you and me, nobody's, nobody's front running a hundred dollars that I'm putting into the market. Are they, are they, they're probably more interested in front running a $10 million order than they are a $5,000 order. But either way, you could still front run these orders to make either a little bit or a lot of money. We won't go into all the different types of front running. There are many, many variations on this theme and there is some overlap with insider trading and market manipulation in general. So that's a little, a quick little primer on uh, front running and stuff. Let's get to high frequency trading. Really, all it is, is using computers and algorithms to trade really, really quickly. They use computers along with algorithms to make decisions faster than a person could make them. That's it. Doesn't sound so bad, right? Why am I even talking about it? It's just very quick investing. Well, <laughs> of course there's more to it or I wouldn't be talking about it. Here's a definition from Wikipedia. In case you want to look this up, it might've changed by the time you see it. You know how Wikipedia is. High frequency trading is a type of algorithmic trading in finance characterized by high speeds, high turnover rates, and high order to trade ratios that leverages high frequency financial data and electronic trading tools. While there is no single definition of HFT, among its key attributes are highly sophisticated algorithms, co-location, and very short investment horizons in trading securities. HFT uses proprietary trading strategies carried out by computers to move in and out of positions in seconds or fractions of a second. So in other words, you don't know what their strategy is going to be and how they're executing that strategy. That is not transparent. It's opposite of, let's say, a CEO who has to sell their stock only during a certain window and has to do so publicly. This is completely opaque. Nobody knows exactly what's going on except for the people running that particular high-frequency trader and what whoever wrote the algorithms. Other than that, it's, it's not transparent at all. You and I, trading through whatever app on your computer or phone, I remember the good old days when we used to call them programs, not apps, but whatever. <laughs> if we're really tapping fast, given all the, you know, delays and loading times and stuff, we might be able to trade every five or 10 seconds. Meanwhile, a high frequency trader 
could have traded thousands of times or more during that five or 10 seconds. That's what we're talking about here. They can trade extremely quickly, milliseconds. I don't know. It depends on the variables there, but they can trade very, very quickly. All right. The next bit on Wikipedia says, I'm skipping a little bit, but high frequency traders move in and out of short term positions at high volumes and high speeds, aiming to capture sometimes a fraction of a cent in profit on every trade. High frequency trading firms do not consume significant amounts of capital, accumulate positions, or hold their portfolios overnight. As a result, high frequency traders have a potential sharp ratio, a measure of reward to risk, tens of times higher than traditional buy and hold strategies. High frequency traders typically compete against other high frequency traders rather than long-term investors. So it's all good, right? Nothing to worry about there. Let's, let's talk about a little bit of that quote. So what they're saying here basically is that high frequency traders don't compete against retail or institutions or anybody. They're basically just competing against each other and they're only getting a fraction of a cent each time in each trade. And they don't, you know, they, they don't take up a lot of space, right? They don't do a whole lot of anything. They just, they get a few little fractions of a penny here and there. Not a big deal, right? Have you guys seen office space? You remember, um, <laughs> remember when they move a decimal plate raw place to the, you know, he does an incorrect decimal place and he ends up with a million dollars or whatever in the account overnight. And they're like, oh crap. <laughs> yeah. Kind of like that. Right. But all right. Well, there's no problem then, right? It's all fine. They're just trading against themselves, right? Right? What could possibly go wrong with something like this? Now, the arguments in favor of high-frequency trading, before I get into some of the other stuff, is uh, it creates lower spreads, better liquidity, and better price discovery. Lower spreads because one of the forms of high-frequency trading is market making. We'll go into that a little bit later. Better liquidity because there are more trades happening overall, so it's easier to buy and sell because there are more buyers and sellers. And better price discovery because there is more market activity. Price discovery means that all the market participants get together and they do stuff and they arrive at the correct price for any given asset. Now, um, just a little, uh, little disclaimer here. I am not an expert on any of this stuff. I know a little bit about stocks and a little bit about the stock market. I have bought and stuff with stocks somewhat successfully in the past, but I am not, uh, I'm not an expert at any of this. So don't take my word for it. And I might, confuse some terminology here. So if that's the case, I apologize, but I did do my best looking this stuff up and trying to get it right. So hopefully none of it's wrong. Some of it probably is. Also, uh, as they say in anything talking about stocks, this is not investment advice. Please do not do anything that I say or whatever. I don't know. Anyway, so as Wikipedia said, high frequency traders only compete against themselves and don't affect retail. That's you and me. So we don't have to worry about high frequency traders. They don't make up a significant portion of anything according to Wikipedia or do they? According to research and studies, high frequency traders actually make up a significant portion of market trading 
volume. Nobody knows exactly how much because it is secret, it is proprietary, and they don't collect this data. But the estimates are anywhere starting at, uh, on the low end, 50%, and I've, 50 to 80%, and I've seen estimates even higher than 80%, some, some estimates over 90%. Let's just stop and think about that for a second. Out of all the stock market activity, all of the trading, half of it or more is done by high-frequency traders. So how could they have no impact on the market if they're more than half of the market? We'll get into a couple of cases <laughs> later, but I mean, it's, there's just an incredible amount of trading due to high frequency trading. So let me just look up a quick example here. Just Microsoft Corporation, right? Just out of a, uh, on a whim, right? So Looking at the previous day of trading, which would be, I don't know, what was that, Friday? So it's Saturday, I think. I'm recording on a Saturday. Yeah, recording on a Saturday. Yesterday's trading, uh, Microsoft Corporation had a total volume of 26.7 million shares. That means on Friday, 26.7 million shares traded back and forth just in one day. And according to what I could find, at least 13 million and possibly, probably a lot more than that, maybe as much as 20 million or more shares was traded all by high frequency traders, by computers, by algorithms, right? Just by algorithms. This is pretty, pretty wild stuff. Hey, if you don't believe me, look it up yourself. I don't believe it. I find it hard to believe myself, right? It's weird, really weird that this much stock market activity could be just done by computers, not by people at home making orders, not by m people managing funds or people managing private accounts. None of that stuff, right? Not institutional investors, just some machine. So the question is, how much money do high-frequency traders make? Unfortunately, the exact number is not known because nobody really reports it anywhere. Like I said, it is not transparent like so much of the rest of the market is, but it is in the billions. How many billions? 2 billion, 20 billion, 100 billion? Nobody knows, but it's a lot. It's a lot of money that they make every single year on high-frequency trading. So if they're only competing against themselves and they don't impact the rest of the market, like Wikipedia suggests, where does all of this money come from? Is it just invented out of thin air? Is this just some sort of high frequency circle jerk? You know, where does it all come from? It doesn't affect you or me, according to Wikipedia and according, according to a lot of people experts, I call them, you know, experts with quotes, they, uh, high frequency traders are actually good for the markets. They provide liquidity. They make price discovery better and all that stuff, right? So if all that's true, again, why am I talking about it? Well, because it's probably not true. Probably they have a huge impact on the market as you might expect with that kind of a volume. And a lot of people don't like high frequency traders and think they should be either heavily regulated 
limited, or just outright banned altogether. But why? Well, let's get into it. High-frequency traders use many, many different strategies. So let's talk about a few of those. First up, the simplest strategy is market making or acting as a market maker. A market maker provides liquidity to the markets. Have you ever wondered when you go to buy stock now, <laughs> like how many people just go buy stock? Some people do. I don't know. I'll put a few bucks in here and there occasionally. But have you ever wondered if you go buy a few few shares in your favorite company, have you ever wondered where that comes from? Well, they have actual market makers that will take the buy and sell sides to try to make a profit on the difference. There's a company that is buying and selling at the same time. Somebody has to offer the shares for sale and somebody has to buy the shares. There wouldn't be enough liquidity, theoretically, if you just let the market do that. So if you went to go and sell your shares, you might have to wait a few days for whatever company until somebody wanted to buy those shares, depending on the size of the company and how much people wanted to transact that. But especially for a medium or small company, you might be waiting a while. Meanwhile, if you actually ever go buy stocks, as soon as you click buy, just like that, I'd snap my fingers, but the noise removal software will probably remove it. So just pretend like I just snapped my fingers. But as soon as you click buy or sell, unless you're buying something on the over-the-counter markets, then it goes through right away. And a big part of the reason why that happens is market makers. So there's a buy price and a sell price or a bid and an ask. It's called bid and ask is how they refer to these things. And there's a gap between there. If the, if the stock has low volume, that, that in other words, not that many people want to trade that stock, then there will be a big gap between buy and sell, uh, especially for like over the counter or something that has very low volume, the gap might be a couple of dollars. That means that as a buyer or seller, you're paying that couple of dollars to the market maker. That's how they make money and they stay in business and provide liquidity, right? You're losing that. So let's say that something's trading at $25. That's what people are buying it for. And then they're selling it for, um, you know, let's say $25.10. If you want to buy some, then you have to pay the higher price. And if you want to sell some, you have to pay the lower price. That's how it works. So the idea is that high-frequency traders will take both sides of that trade and they will just automate it. There'll just be bots, bots that do this all day long. They'll just make a penny here, a penny there, providing liquidity to the market. That's actually, okay, that's fine. That's actually something that needs to be done. Uh, I, guess, I, don't needs, I don't mean needs to be done necessarily. I mean, the markets would still function without that. But with high-frequency traders acting as market makers, it really does improve the volume or increase the volume and shrink those bids and ask because there's more than one company or one high frequency trader. There are many, many, many traders. And there are even people, private individuals who will do what this is also called scalping. They will either buy software or write their own software to do this all day long. And it doesn't take a ton of money because you're not talking about, you're not necessarily talking about 
you know, trading millions of dollars at a time here. Just one share in each direction is fine. And then you get to make pennies here and pennies there, right? So you can do that, especially these days when your average retail investor can have access to, um, to commission-free trades, which by the way, they're not really commission-free that they just tell you that there is a cost. It just sort of hidden, but anybody, pretty much anybody can do this if they want. So there are thousands and thousands of individuals, companies, entities, whatever on any given stock that are, all right, where was I? Uh, I got kind of sidetracked there. I was out here in my shed recording and I heard, um, some loud noises outside. It sounded like gunshots. It's kind of weird. Uh, but anyways, whatever. Hopefully, hopefully not, but I did get sort of derailed there because I did go peek outside and look around. So anyways, back to, what was I talking about? Um, market making. I was talking about how there are any number of individuals trying to be market makers at any given time. Loosely speaking, uh, real market makers actually have regulations and stuff. So they can't just go and do certain things that are kind of shady, like, <laughs> like front running, basically. Like if you're a market maker and you know, there's a big order coming in, you could do some self-dealing and make a lot of money on that. So there are rules, rules against actual market makers. So when you have market makers that are high frequency traders that are not actual market makers, but they're acting like market makers, they can do shady stuff. Uh, but anyways, high, long story short, high frequency traders, one of their strategies is to do market making, meaning that they'll take the buy and sell side at the same time and make money on the spread or the gap between the buy and the sell. Again, usually it's a little bit, just a couple pennies or less. Sometimes it can be a fraction of a penny depending on um, what's going on and, uh, you know, the rules of whatever exchange they're trading on. I'm not an expert on all this, but from what I understand, it can be very, very small slivers of a penny. So that one is that particular strategy. It's actually not that, it's not that bad. There, there is the potential for shenanigans, but even so it's, um, it could be worse, right? It, it could be worse than losing out on a few pennies every time you trade. All right. So next up they do something. Well, not all of them. These are all, they don't, not all of them do all of these strategies. A lot of them will have a specific strategy that they stick to, to try to make money. But another one they use is called spoofing. Spoofing is the illegal practice of bidding or offering with intent to cancel before execution. So the basic idea is that uh, you'll put an order to buy or sell, and it could be any amount of order, right? So you put an order for like a million dollars. I'm going to buy a million dollars. You don't have a million dollars. So you don't, you don't actually want to buy a million dollars worth of shares. You just want to make the price go up. So you'll put an order, but before the order can execute, you remove the order without any intent to execute that order. So it's a fake order or a spoofed order spoofing people or high frequency traders can do this and make it look like there's a lot of orders on the order book when in reality there's not. So other algorithms or computerized traders or even people will see that there's a lot of activity building up and then they will trade accordingly. Meanwhile, the price goes up and whoever was doing the spoofing dumps a bunch of shares 
even if it's only a little bit of a profit, it doesn't have to be much. Keep in mind that the stock market, the historical return of the stock market on average is something like 10% a year. This includes all of the up and all the down, right? Overall, it's about 10% a year, roughly speaking. So if you can shave off just a fraction of a percent thousands of times a day, you'd be doing way better than the market as a whole. Like you'd be, you'd be making a lot of money, even if each individual transaction is not that much. Cause remember you can do this over and over and over again. If you're a high frequency trader, you can do this thousands of times a second, right? You can put these orders in reality. You're not making money thousands of times a second necessarily, but you could be making money all day like this, right? You just turn the computer on, go golfing or, you know, go to the vacation on the beach or whatever it is you want to do, come back and look at your account, just filling up with all those zeros, right? Presumably with a number in front of the zeros. <laughs> now this practice has a famous case attached. Well, there's, there's been several cases, but the most famous was probably the infamous 2010 flash crash. Now there've been other flash crashes. They happen every year and they happen more often than you might think. Not necessarily every day, but maybe multiple times a year. But the most famous one was the 2010 flash crash, which was a trillion dollar market crash that lasted about 36 minutes. Really unprecedented. Most of the time when markets crash this much, it crashes and takes a long time to recover, much longer than 36 minutes. This was the largest intraday point swing at about a thousand points on the Dow industrial average, or about 10% of the total. So the, the markets lost 10% pretty much in the blink of an eye. And for a while, there were theories about why this happened. And this, this is definitely an episode in and of itself. So I'm going to skip a lot of the stuff surrounding it because it's, it gets pretty complicated as far as what happened and why it crashed like this. So we'll do the short, short, short version. Five years after the flash crash, a dude named Navinder Singh Sar Sararo, um, S-A-R-A-O, Sarario, uh, sorry. <laughs> Nav so I'll just call him Navender. I think, you know, N-A-V-I-N-D-E-R, Navender. Uh, that can't be, I can't be that off, far off on that one, right? Anyways, this was a guy living in Britain who was charged with 22 criminal counts, such as fraud and market manipulation. He was just a guy using what they call off-the-shelf software or commercially available software that anybody could have bought but he did hire somebody to modify the software to be able to trade faster than it was available, able to, to do off the shelf. And he was using it to spoof orders to manipulate the market. This is straight up market manipulation. No ifs, ands, or buts about it, right? What he would do is he would place hundreds of millions of dollars in futures contract orders that he would then cancel before they could execute. But this immense volume would convince other traders and other algorithms that the market would decline because he was doing futures orders that the market would go down. I won't get into futures contracts, but I won't get into the details of those. But in a nutshell, a futures contract, you're not actually buying stocks, but you're, it's more or less gambling on the future outcome. So you buy a future contract saying, 
you know, I, I'm betting 10 bucks that it's going to go up or 10 bucks that it's going to go down. It's more complicated than that, but that's just, you know, roughly speaking what they are. You're betting on the future price. And there's, so there's also the reason this convinces people is there's something called level two quotes. If most people, if they go buy stocks, they just look at the bid and the ask. That's all they can see. They can see what the, the highest bid and the lowest ask. So you can see what the prices you'll pay. But some people, it's become more common these days and easier to access. It used to be you'd have to have like a certain account balance, like, you know, a huge amount of money in your account or something like that, or you just have to pay for access. But these days, some brokers actually offer for free. They offer level two quotes. What a level two quote is, is that you can actually see the order book. So you can see that somebody's offering to buy 10 shares at $10. And then there's another person below them offering to buy a hundred shares at $9 and 58 cents. And then below them, you know, the next order below that will be all the way down to $9 and 30 cents. But that order is a million shares. I don't know, whatever you can look at who's offering to buy what shares at what price point. Very, very valuable information potentially very valuable information, not always that valuable because there's a lot of ways to manipulate this or to conceal your true orders. They all, they have things like iceberg orders. They have, you know, you could place an order, uh, have your computer watch the market and wait to place the order until it reaches a certain price point, whatever. So level two quotes are not necessarily the end all be all, but it could be potentially very valuable information. And if somebody or a computer if somebody's watching the order books, the level two quotes, and they see all of a sudden hundreds of millions of dollars in orders pop up, that's going to raise a few eyebrows and people might go along with whatever those orders are because the size of that order will move the market at least a little bit. It will affect the pricing in the market. So that's what happens here. They, this guy was putting in hundreds of millions of dollars in futures contract orders and then cancel the orders before they could execute. But it caught the attention of other traders and other algorithms and it affected the, the price of the markets. Um, that's like I said, this is, it's all very complicated and there's theories as to what made the market go haywire because this in and of itself should not have caused a trillion dollar implosion. Uh, there's, you know, there's some fun theories. Like I think one of them is called the fat finger theory. We won't go into all that. Cause like I said, it's a whole, whole separate episode. But at the end of the day, this one guy, just this one guy was blamed for the flash crash. This one dude, Navinder Singh, who was essentially like, I forget exactly, but I, I think he was like, he was just living at his parents' house, trading out of their basement on just a basic bitch computer a computer that you or I could get, right? Nothing too crazy and making millions and millions of dollars. Here's the crazy thing. He was doing the exact same crap that high frequency traders were doing, but he was not part of the financial system. He wasn't bribing the right people. So they blamed it on him and threw him under the bus and he became the fall guy the patsy, whatever you want to say. And there, um, there's a quote that said, blaming this one guy is a little bit like blaming lightning for starting fire. I guess that's kind of a good quote, 
but uh, lightning does start fire. But I mean, sure, he was doing something illegal, but he was doing something that everybody else was doing too. Like it wasn't, he was not the only person doing this. I think that it's just that he wasn't on Wall Street doing it and he wasn't paying other people on Wall Street to do it. He wasn't, he didn't have the right connections and that's why he got busted for it, right? Because how, how come the high frequency traders do this sort of thing? They do spoofing. I've seen it. You can go look at the, the, the quotes on markets and you can see order spoofing in action. You can see an order being placed and quickly withdrawn uh, before it executes. Like it happens every day. You can go, you can go watch it happen in real time if you like. So why did this one guy get busted for it? It's crazy. It's because he was, he was making a lot of money and he didn't have the right connections. I'm convinced it's as simple as that. Maybe I'll do an episode on it at some point, but I feel like, you know, I feel like if, if one person's allowed to do it, why not somebody else? If he went to jail, other people should have also gone to jail. But like I said, if you're going to, if you're going to do crime, go big. And this guy, he wasn't going big enough. He was only making millions, not tens or hundreds of millions, not billions. If he was making billions, then he wouldn't be in jail. Is he in jail still? I don't know. Did he even go to jail? Did he get some sort of deal? I have no idea. I didn't look into this story too much because it's, it's a whole rabbit hole in and of itself. But at the end of the day, he was part of it because of his massive order spoofing. What, what it looks like happened is it caused a chain reaction where other algorithms made the decision to basically stop trading because if the market's going to go down, it's a lot harder to make money in a down market and the algorithms may not work as good in a down market. So it looks like they just turned off the algorithms. And remember earlier how I said that 50% or more of the market volume is high frequency trading. Well, guess what happens when they stop trading? <laughs> you get a flash crash because you have all this trading going on and all of a sudden it's boom, it's gone. Then the market doesn't know what to do and it just boom, drops like a rock. And of course, you had companies, you had stocks that were worth hundreds of dollars a share dropping all the way down to a penny temporarily and then springing all the way back. You had stocks going up to thousands of dollars a share. It was chaos. It was just insane. So this is one of the many dangers of high frequency trading. You have machines making decisions, but not smart machines. You don't have artificial intelligence. You just have stupid machines. Stupid machines making stupid decisions, doing what they're programmed to do, and sometimes they react very badly. Uh, like I said, this case is a lot more complicated than what I've said, but that's it in a nutshell, right? This is a perfect example of why high-frequency trading is dangerous. All right, another strategy they use is layering. And here's a quote. Layering is a strategy in high-frequency trading where a trader makes and then cancels orders that they never intend to have executed, kind of like spoofing, in hopes of influencing the stock price. For instance, to buy stock at a lower price, the trader initially places orders to sell at or below the market ask price. This may cause the market's best ask price to fall as other market participants lower their asking prices because they perceive selling pressure as they see the sell orders being entered on the order book. The trader may place subsequent sell orders for the security at successively lower prices as the best ask price falls. After the price has fallen sufficiently, the trader makes a real trade, 
buying the stock at the now lower best ask price and cancels all the sell orders. So basically it's spoofing with a little bit of a modification. Um, sorry if that was a little bit wordy, but basically you're making lower and lower orders. You know, you're laddering down orders with, with, um, sell orders. You don't really intend on executing so that you can drop the price to buy some shares. And then as soon as you buy them, you remove all of these sell orders, the price springs right back up and then you can sell them for an instant profit or nearly instant, right? That's the idea. No good. It is straight up market manipulation and it is illegal, but this is one of the things that high frequency traders do. All right. Another strategy is quote, stuffing. <laughs> no, this is not a Thanksgiving dealio. We just had Thanksgiving. Happy holidays. Happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Hope you guys all had a good one. I'm not sure if you people overseas celebrate anything like this. Um, if you don't, American Thanksgiving is a day when we all get off of work. We hang out with our families. We eat turkey and turkey stuffing and um, pumpkin pie bunch of other stuff, cranberry sauce. I don't know. This is a traditional meal that we do here in the States. I don't know if you guys do it elsewhere, but uh, we do it here. Anyways, quote stuffing, not turkey stuffing. <laughs> this is a type of market manipulation where orders are quickly placed and removed. Sound familiar, but it's a little bit different. Here's a quote. This can create confusion in the market and trading opportunities for high speed algorithmic traders. By quote stuffing, trading systems delay price quotes while the stuffing is occurring simply by placing and canceling orders at a rate that substantially surpasses the bandwidth of market data feed lines. The order pile up in buff the orders pile up in buffers, and the delay lasts until the buffer drains. Trading systems slow down a direct exchange feed whenever they want. And the phantom orders do not need to be in a particular stock. They can be in any of the securities that cohabit the particular price or market data feed. That's the important part. So in other words, if one market has Microsoft, since we're talking about them earlier, and some other, they're also trading another stock, let, let's say Apple. Well, they can quote stuff Apple and that will slow down the price for everything, including Microsoft. And it doesn't have to slow it down by much. Even a few microseconds is enough for them to gain an advantage and manipulate the market and put in orders in a, um, orders to buy or sell out of order. It allows them to mess up the order. And if you can mess up the order, then you can make a lot of money doing that because you can change up the order of how things happen so that obviously you can use this to manipulate prices. All right. Another strategy is called ticker tape trading. This is when basically the machines constantly scan the market and look for anything that will tip the price in one direction or another, such as an institutional purchase. The computers are able to react to new public information, such as a major event like a new CEO or a big purchase much, much faster than a human trader can. And this one, it's kind of like front running, but it's probably not illegal because 
They're using publicly available information. They're just able to execute on that information much, much faster than anybody else can. So this one is, even though it's a little shady, it's probably not illegal, believe it or not. There's another one called statistical arbitrage. Now, traditional arbitrage is when a trader can profit from a price discrepancy. For example, let's say you are at the grocery store and there's a bottle of soda on clearance for 25 cents. And you know that you can go sell this at the other grocery store down the street, assuming, I mean, a silly example maybe, but let's just pretend that you can bring something to a grocery store and sell it. So one grocery store is selling it for 25 cents. Another grocery store down the street is selling it for a dollar. You buy all of the soda for 25 cents. You drive down the street and sell it for 75 cents for, for a dollar, making a 75 cent profit. That's the idea behind arbitrage. Really simple idea. There are many, many different versions of this. For example, um, you might do what's called retail arbitrage. Retail arbitrage is, let's say I can buy something at a discount store for a discount and sell it on eBay, right? Another type of arbitrage might be between two different exchanges. For example, let's let's use Bitcoin for an example. So that's been in the news lately. There's a block or there's um, a having coming up next year sometime in 2024. That means that the block rewards will be halved. And also there's some ETFs on the horizon that might be approved soon. That's making some earthquakes in the market. So Bitcoin has been in the news. You can use arbitrage on Bitcoin. Let's say that uh, Coinbase and um, I don't know, What's another, what's another uh, market? Uh, Kraken. So let's say that Coinbase and Kraken have slightly different prices. Now, if you go on a website called CoinMarketCap, you can look at, it'll track all of the exchanges that list that particular cryptocurrency and it'll show their prices. So you can see right there in front of you that uh, Kraken will have a price that might be a little different than Coinbase. The price might only be a few pennies different. In fact, for Bitcoin, it probably will only be a few pennies different. Back in the day, uh, it might have been a few dollars different. Whatever the case may be, you can buy on one exchange and sell on the other exchange and make a few pennies. But if you do this all day long, it's pretty much a guaranteed profit. Remember that quote earlier where the quote said that it was um, less risky Basically, you had less risk than traditional long-term trading because you're doing things that have a more or less guaranteed profit. You have something you can immediately cash in on. Another kind of arbitrage might be using, like, let's say you're using, um, you're doing Forex trading. You're doing currency pairs, right? So you're trading, let's say you trade uh, dollars for pounds and then you trade pounds for euros, and then you trade euros back to dollars. There are some cases where you can use a triangle of trades like this, where there might be a little discrepancy and you might be able to make a little bit of money, shave a few pennies here and there, because for whatever reason, let's say the, the trading pair of pounds versus euros shifts a little bit before dollars to euros or dollars to pounds can shift to compensate, it, they'll, they'll all shift and equalize eventually. But if something happens to cause that pair 
to jump in price, you'll have a moment a moment in time where you can trade those pairs quickly, like in a triangle trade, and you can make a quick little profit. Little profit, but if you're doing it with a computer and the computer watches the markets and they can do it all day long, eventually it'll add up. So that's one form of arbitrage that high-frequency traders can use. This particular form of arbitrage is actually kind of not really a bad thing. This is sort of like the price discovery realm of things where um, the price is going to equalize eventually, but instead of letting it naturally equalize, the, they're sort of taking that money out of the market to equalize it. It's not that big of a deal. The prices are going to equalize one way or another anyways, um, just randomly because things will balance out because if they don't balance out, somebody notices and will take advantage of it anyways. It's just kind of how things works. So that one isn't really that nefarious, like, um, <laughs> like quote stuffing or anything like that, but it is, it, it still can be abused. There's another one called statistical arbitrage where, um, well, here's a quote. It exploits predictable temporary deviations from stable statistical relationships among securities. So like it uses complicated math and formulas and things to sort of look at, okay, this price is not where it's supposed to be. So we will take advantage of that and the price will go right back. Um, uh, this is one... I don't know if this is specifically, but it seems to me this might be, if you're ever looking at stocks and you notice if the stock price jumps a lot in a short period of time, sometimes you can see, if you look at the bar charts, you'll see that like this, the stocks will, it might jump like a whole 1% and that's a lot for most stocks to go like 1% up in five in a five minute bar. That's a huge jump. So if it goes up 1%, most of the time after that huge jump, it'll revert a little, at least a little bit back to where it was. And that might be one of the things they're talking about here, but basically they're using math to predict where the price should be if it deviates from where that is. And that's statistical arbitrage. Again, it's not, this one's not super nefarious, although they can, they can be a little shady with it, I guess, but it's, this one's not that bad. All right. Another one is index arbitrage. And this uses the fact that indexed funds have to purchase the index. So when, when you have an index fund, they will lay out the rules for themselves saying, okay, we have to balance this fund to buy every single stock in the index, whatever index that may be, the Dow Jones, the Russell 2000, the S&P 500, whatever. The index fund is going to own every single one of those stocks, even the stocks that don't look good, the ones that look like they're going to go bankrupt, whatever. The idea behind an index fund is that it's very difficult to predict future price of stocks, but the stock market as a whole tends to go up over time. Even if the, if you look at the history of the stock market, I'm talking about um, the United States stock market. I don't know very much about foreign stock market, what I would call foreign stock markets, but your local stock market in your country is different than my local stock market. So I don't know if this is true across the board, but in the United States stock market, if you go through the history of the stock market, if you buy at the peak of the market just before the market crashes during any crash, the 1929 crash, the 1987 crash, it, whatever, any of the crashes, the 2008 crash, any of these big historical catastrophic crashes, if you buy at the peak and then hold, 
you will make a profit throughout the history of the, that always goes back up, right? So the idea behind an index fund is, well, we're not going to bother trying to predict the market. We're just going to trust that the market will continue to do what it has always done and go up in the long run. So an index fund just buys a little bit of everything. And in the long run, it goes up. Pretty simple, right? Simple strategy. Of course, it, it's not going to go up is buying an individual stock that goes up by a ton, but they're not trying to make a ton of money here. They're, they're trying to make safer money, I guess. But anyways, this gets a little more interesting because if a stock, let's say you, let's say you have um, a stock that's on, you know, whatever, like let's say the S&P 500, they have rules for what gets listed on the S&P 500. Stocks that are too small or penny stocks are not part of that index. So if there's a stock that's struggling and it's doing poorly and the price drops below a certain threshold, it will be dropped by the index. Now, if that stock is no longer on the S&P 500, guess what? The index fund has to sell that stock because it is no longer on the index fund. <laughs> and guess what? You guessed it. That is a great opportunity to make some money. And it works in reverse too. If you have a small company that's doing really well and they're moving on up, the stock reaches a certain threshold and it will be added to the, to the, uh, to the index. Same thing. The, the index funds, there's a lot of index funds out there. The index funds now have to buy shares of this stock to add it to their funds because that's how they work. They have to buy everything on that index. Pretty simple strategy. And the thing is that this doesn't happen instantaneously. If a stock goes above a certain threshold, they don't necessarily get listed right away. It takes some time. So this is a perfect chance, not just for high frequency traders actually, but potentially individuals like you or me could see, okay, this, this company is going to be added to the exchange. Let's buy a couple of shares. Let's buy a few, a few cheeky little shares, as they might say in England, <laughs> they say cheeky stuff. So buy a, a cheeky couple of shares there and uh, make a couple bucks, right? When it gets listed on the index, the index funds have to buy it. And because there's a somewhat finite amount of shares that will cause the price to go up even more. It's a good opportunity. It's not guaranteed. Nothing is guaranteed when it comes to investing, but it's easy money, relatively speaking, right? Really interesting strategy that I've always wanted to figure out how to make it work myself. I've never gotten around to it because I'm, you know, busy doing other stuff, but I've always thought that that would be, if you're going to do a weird strategy, that could be a weird strategy to look into. Also, um, you can do what's called paper trading. So if you're going to try something weird like this, uh, if I have a weird idea, I'll just open up my stock account where I have, you know, a handful of shares, nothing too crazy. And I'll open the paper trading side of it and I'll do what's called a paper trade. So I do, it's like a practice trade. I'm doing a pretend transaction where I'm not actually buying shares. I'm just pretending to buy shares. And then I can see if that strategy worked out more often than not. It does not because I get these really weird ideas and I think, Hey, that's a good idea. I try, <laughs> try it out. And usually more often than not, it's actually not a good idea because if it was, I would be filthy stinking rich and I would not be doing a podcast in a, in a shed 
that's 45 degrees freezing my ass off, I would be doing it on, on a beach somewhere in the tropics. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'd still be doing the podcast because I love doing this. I just wouldn't be doing it in a shitty little shed. <laughs> no, it's actually a really nice shed. It's got drywall and stuff, but it's really cold out here. But anyways, uh, yeah, paper trading. If you listen to this episode and you think, Hey, wait a minute, that sounds like a good idea. Try paper trading first. Trust me, you're probably going to lose. All right. Anyways, another strategy that high frequency traders use is news based bots scan various news feeds all day, every day. There's electronic news feeds. This stuff will go out on like the AP newswire. There's uh, premium services that you can pay for all kinds of news sources. Bots will just scan for keywords or for certain things. And they'll pick up those news stories before a person can get access to it. And like I said, it only has to be a few milliseconds and then it'll trade based on that information and make money doing that. Now it's like, all right, this is publicly available information. So it's not as bad as market manipulation, but it's still kind of like shady. It still doesn't seem fair. Does it at least not to me? It's not that bad, but it's still a little unfair that by the time I see a news article, I get an alert on my phone for a company. You could, you could set alerts for certain companies on certain websites. Oh, dang it. I just now got a Microsoft news, big news for Microsoft. I go to trade, but unfortunately the high frequency traders have already profited on that information before I even have a chance. Kind of sucks. Not really that fair, right? There's a lot of other strategies that high frequency traders use, such as liquidity fading, dark pools, payment for order flow, and a lot of other things they do that's kind of shady and probably stuff that we don't even know about yet. They are constantly coming up with new ways of making money. But uh, that's, I mean, that's a, a few, that's just a, a little snippet. That's a handful of them that just to give you a little idea of what they're doing. Now there has been some regulations or attempts, for example, in Italy, they passed a tiny little small tax on high frequency transactions. I think it's a fraction of a penny. I forget the exact number, but it doesn't have to be a lot because remember these high frequency traders are doing this potentially thousands of times a second. So even just a fraction of a penny tax adds up real quick. The EU, the European Union passed something called uh, MIFID, the MIFID 2, which went to, into effect in 2018 that regulates some of this stuff. It's pretty complicated, so I'll let you guys read up on it on your own. It did not completely outlaw high-frequency trading, but it was an attempt to level the playing field. Because as I have talked about with these strategies, none of them are fair to a person. None of them are fair to the retail trader. It's all feels a lot like insider trading because you don't have access to these tools. Well, at least most people don't. I don't know. Maybe you do. I certainly don't. <laughs> I wouldn't even know where to begin. Unfortunately, here in the United States, it should surprise no one at all that the SEC has actually made it easier for high frequency trading over the years, not more difficulties. There have been a few penalties laid down against high frequency traders throughout the years for doing bad stuff, but there are few and far between. And the financial penalty is usually a slap on the wrist compared to what they're actually making. 
And if anything, it just encourages them to keep on doing it. For example, Citadel, who I'm, I guarantee we will talk about in a future episode because they are involved in a lot of shenanigans, but, uh, we will leave that for the future. They were actually busted for, um, what, which one for quote stuffing in 2014, they were fined $800,000 for quote stuffing. <laughs> so $800,000, that sounds, that's a lot of money for me. It's a lot of money for you, but for a high frequency trader, remember the high frequency traders as a whole are making billions of dollars a year. So for the, for Citadel, 800,000 bucks, not that much. It's kind of like the SEC is just telling them, go ahead and keep doing it. I mean, bad, very bad. Don't do it again. You know, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. <laughs> very, very bad. Like they're pretending <laughs> to penalize them, but they're not really penalizing them. So how is all this possible, right? Why is it possible for high frequency traders to do all of this stuff? A lot of it is due to just the fact that you're using a computer. So a computer can think a lot faster than a person can. But do you remember that bit at the beginning when I read a definition of high frequency trading? Do you remember the bit about co-location? What does that mean, co-location? Well, all of the exchanges have their computers in a certain spot. Now, these high-frequency traders are so fast that if their computer is a little bit closer to wherever the New York Stock Exchange, I think the New York Stock Exchange has their, has their servers in New Jersey, if I remember correctly. Anyways, if you can put your computer a mile closer to those servers than your competitor then that's that mild difference. Even though these things are happening very quickly, that mild difference could give you a fraction of a second enough to where you can get an advantage over somebody who's just a mile further away. That's kind of what co-location means. So you have these high frequency traders buying buildings or renting space across the street from wherever the servers are for exchanges, because being across the street gives you a huge advantage, gives you milliseconds advantage over your average trader and possibly even more versus like a, a retail, like you and me, because I have to send it to a broker who's a middleman and then they have to send it to the markets. So that takes a lot longer and the high frequency traders have access to all of that data along the way. They know that I put a trade in and they know that where the trade's going to be routed and they can actually, in some cases, manipulate how that trade is routed because, um, sit, like I said, Citadel who does high frequency trading is also a market maker and they also facilitate trades. They are involved in all kinds of shenanigans. So we'll get, like I said, I'm sure we will talk about them some point in the future. In fact, I want to get a guest on who actually understands this crap and can explain it to the layperson because it's very complicated. I read about a lot of this stuff. Some of it I understand. Like for example, co-location, not that complicated. You're closer, you get your signal there faster. Not super complicated, at least on the surface. I'm sure the, the guts of it are a lot more complicated, but some of this stuff is, I just look at it. I'm like, huh? I don't understand that. I don't, I don't know anything what that, what I, what I just read about. Anyways, co-location, it gets worse. It's worse than just buying or renting the building across the street because a lot of the exchanges like the New York stock exchange or NASDAQ 
actually rents space in their servers to high frequency traders. This is where it gets extremely unfair, extremely unfair to the average person, extremely unfair to institutions like mutual funds or pension funds trying to trade large blocks of shares. If high frequency traders have computers on the actual exchange, this allows them to do things like front running because they get the market data a fraction of a second sooner than the incoming orders. They can see the incoming order and react quickly enough to buy shares, boosting the price by a little bit, by a few pennies, and then reselling it at a profit. Front running. This co-location allows them to do front running. They don't call it front running because you do it with computers, but it's front running and somehow it's legal. Front running is illegal if you do it by in person, by foot, by physically running from here to there. Somehow, if you do it with a computer, now all of a sudden it's legal again. How does that work? I don't know. I'm guessing they use some kind of convoluted definition that nobody understands except for a couple of really smart math nerds. So that if you ever took it to court, the judges, the juries, they just all be kind of like, huh? I don't know. We need a witness expert for that. And then the witness expert will say, oh yeah, it's fine. Don't worry about it. And then they'd be like, all right, well, okay, sure. Why not? I don't know. How is this crap legal? It seems extremely unfair to me. Now, remember at the beginning when I said, oh, there's benefits, improved liquidity, all this other crap. Some of that is true to an extent, but where does all this money come from? A lot of it is not that big of a deal for like you and me. If I go to buy some shares and the exchange sees, you know, the frequent, the traders or the exchange or whatever. So first of all, there are, there, it's very unfair because if I place an order, that data is sent to other traders in the market to have, who pay to have access to that data on a large scale, they can see that I'm trying to buy at a certain price point, And then they can use that information to profit. Uh, is it manipulation? Yeah, it kind of is manipulation because they have access to data that I don't have access to. I just get the bid and the ask. They get to see what orders are in place, including stop loss orders. Um, and we're kind of bumping up on the time limit here and I'm freezing my ass off. So I won't go into stop losses, but, um, they can see all those different orders and they can use those to their advantage. Whereas I cannot, this is extremely shady stuff. If the exchanges are renting space to these traders, it seems extremely unfair to me. You know, if I place my order and they can see that order coming in and they can use that to raise the price for me, it's just going to cost me a fraction of a penny or maybe a few pennies. If I'm only buying 10 shares and it costs me 10 extra cents, does it suck? Yeah, it kind of sucks. It ain't going to ruin my day. It's not going to ruin my portfolio. Who this really hurts is institutional investors. Somebody trying to buy $10 million of shares at once. Remember I mentioned pension funds or, or uh, mutual funds? Mutual funds are basically, you know, those started to help small investors and it turned into something 
later on, but basically they're, you're pooling your resources or a pension fund. A pension fund is trying to make money to pay for people in retirement to be able to retire, right? And you pay into a, a mutual fund or a pension or a retirement fund that's managed by somebody else. You, you pay into that pretty much your whole life, right? At least in America, a lot of people do. They'll pay into retirement funds their whole life to try to save up to retire. So they have some money to retire. High-frequency traders, they can see those big $10 million orders coming into the market and they can raise the price by a, just a fraction of a penny or maybe a penny or whatever. It doesn't sound that bad, but when you're talking about millions of shares at a time, it adds up real quick. That's where these billions of dollars are coming from. It's coming from retail. It's coming from institutions. It comes from somewhere. It is not just a high frequency circle jerk that allows them to compete with each other and doesn't hurt anybody else. It does hurt people. You might not notice, but this money is coming from your retirement account. It is coming from pension funds. It is coming from wherever your money is. That's where this is coming from. It's coming out of your pocket one way or another. It does not come out of thin air. It comes from you. It comes from me. It comes from anybody who trades in these markets, whether directly or indirectly, because your money is managed by somebody else. Most people, their man, their money is managed by somebody else. Um, even if it's just like I was talking about an index fund, even if you just buy through an index fund or whatever, um, one strategy is, okay, they're rebalancing the index fund so I can make a little cheddar off of that. That's one thing, but to flat out just steal on an incoming order, you just steal money straight up that way. That's a whole different strategy. That is, you know, if you know this company is going to be listed or delisted, that's an opportunity. That's not really that shady. Is it shady? I don't know. You see an opportunity to make money. You know, the stock price is going to change it. You know, the stock price is going to go up or down. It It's going to, it's going to, if it gets listed, it's going to go up. If it gets delisted, it's going to go down. That's just how it works. It's going to happen. You might as well ride along and make a few dollars, but it's another deal, another deal entirely to just take money right out of people's pockets essentially is what they're doing. And the way they do this is co-location because they can insert themselves between the orders and the exchanges and the ex they pay the exchanges to let it happen. The exchanges, NASDAQ or whoever are complicit in this theft. They benefit from this theft. The high frequency traders pay them a lot of money to allow it to happen. Is the market rigged against you? Yes, it is. In addition to renting space from or near the exchanges, these high-frequency traders also build exclusive internet connections. They're not stuck on the same slow-ass AT&T or Xfinity or whatever else, you know, us regular slobs are using they use exclusive connections that we have no hope of competing with. How many people, how many average people can afford to build, you know, a miles long fiber connection 
or build a microwave connection or any of these other things that they've done just to try to shave off a fraction of a spec second, right? I think I read that like microwave connections, which is direct line of sight, that's like 30% faster because than fiber optics, because fiber optics, um, the light slows down on the way by a little bit because it has to go through relays and stuff. And the the medium itself, the fiber itself might slow it down, something like that. It's like 30% faster. And you're talking about the speed of light. So that's not much, but it's enough. It's enough to make a difference to where they can get ahead and take advantage of that speed. It's all about speed. The smallest fraction of a second can give high-frequency traders enough of an advantage to equate to millions and millions of dollars. Even just 10 feet closer could make the difference. Or, you know, being on the exchange itself. Sounds pretty grim, like the markets are rigged against us, they are, and that all hope is lost. But there are some people pushing back. If ETA was here, he would make a joke about that. Maybe, probably, I don't know. But for example, the IEX, well, the IEX exchange was founded specifically to counter high-frequency traders. And they did this in part by using what, I think like a 53-mile loop <laughs> of fiber optic cable to level the playing field. How does that work? That's a whole other episode. The IEX is a whole other episode uh, that um, we don't have time to get into today. But they, their whole goal was to try to counteract high-frequency traders so that, let's say, a mutual fund or an institutional trader trying to buy a big chunk of stocks could do so without being front-run. Uh, there's a story where the, what's the guy's name? Uh, it slips my mind. But there's a book about IEX written by Michael Lewis called Flash Boys about the founding of the company. And the guy who founded it or co-founded it was trying, he was a trader for an institution and he would try to buy big blocks of stocks. And he said it was uncanny. You know, he'd put it in order at a certain price, a limit order, because that's what you do. Unless you, you do a market order, if you if you're feeling you know you're feeling saucy, <laughs> oh boy, you want to you want to live dangerously. Do a market order. Uh, he was doing limit orders, you know, to try to buy at a certain price, and every single time that he put in a limit order, the price would go up just a little bit, and his order would not go through. And he was like, "What the hell's going on here?" He didn't know what was happening, what was causing it. And it took him a while to figure out what was happening. And it was high frequency traders were front running him, preventing him from making these orders and potentially costing him a lot of money. So there's a whole book about this guy's company called Flash Boys by Michael Lewis. Now, I know what you're thinking, because uh, because I'm psychic, a book about high frequency trading, that sounds about as interesting as watching paint dry, Right. But actually, it's a really good read. I was, I bought it. I found it on a discount, you know, at some bookstore. I found, bought it for a couple bucks and I figured, ah, what the hell? I'll check it out. I'm, I'm feeling adventurous today. And it's actually a surprisingly good read. It's a really good read. Um, I won't, again, I won't get into that story. Uh, maybe, maybe I'll get into that story later. IEX actually has a podcast called Boxes and Lines. If you want to hear them talking about stuff. 
it's a pretty good podcast, but some of they talk about a lot of technical stuff and a lot of it goes way over my head. Some of it does not, some of it does, but it's a good listen for the, for the topics that you can grasp. It's a really good listen. And I, I kind of want to invite them on the show just to see if I can get them to talk about IEX from their, you know, in their own words. Anyways, Michael Lewis, the guy who wrote Flash Boys about IEX, has a couple of really good quotes from an interview I found on NPR.org. We're going a little long here, so I don't think I'm going to read all of them. But for example, the stock market is rigged. It's rigged for the benefit for a really handful of insiders. It's rigged to maximize the take of Wall Street, of Wall Street, of banks, the exchanges, and high-frequency traders at the expense of ordinary investors. And ordinary investors are people like you and me, but uh, you know, a lot of institutional money, hedge, not hedge, institutional money, meaning you know, mutual funds pensions, that sort of things. Uh, A lot of that money comes from you and me. It's just, we're not doing it directly, but it does come out of our pocket. If I get a price change before everybody else, if I know a stock price is going up or down before you do, I can act on it. If you're coming in to buy shares of Procter and Gamble and you think the price is 80 and I'm sitting there as a high frequency trader and I know that the price of Procter and Gamble is actually lower, it's gone down to 79. I can buy it at 79 and sell it to you at 80. So it's a bit like knowing the result of a horse race before it's run. The time advantage of a high frequency trader is so small, it's literally a millisecond. It takes 100 milliseconds to blink your eye. So it's a fraction of a blink of an eye. But that for a computer is plenty of time. That's, I mean, that's what they're doing, right? Pretty crazy. Here's another quote. There's a bunch of other quotes he had, but um, I'm going to go ahead and skip those because I'm freezing my butt off. My fingers are numb. Maybe you live in a colder climate and 46 degrees is not that big of a deal to you, but for me, it's cold, baby. Yeah, it is that time of year again where you get to listen to me complain about how cold it is out in the shed. (laughs) It's a a yearly event, right? (laughs) Well, whatever. Too bad. Sucks to be you. All right. Another quote I found from free from uh, marketplace.org. I like this quote as well. High frequency trading relies on algorithms and professor Jonathan Macy of Yale School of Management labels some of them parasitic. He compares the strategy to a motorcycle rider noticing a truck driver on a highway and then racing ahead to buy up all the gas along the route. When the truck driver gets to the next gas station, the rider knows the tanker must fill up and sells it to the driver at a premium. Like the motorcycle rider in this scenario, stockbrokers have an incentive to do end runs around investors to sell stocks to them at higher prices. So um, that's kind of, oh, uh, the quote continues, it's a practice made possible thanks to co-loading compu- co-locating computers at or near data centers, buying data tools from the exchanges and getting pricing information milliseconds ahead of others in the system. Um, while it might be small amounts of money on individual trades, there are so many trades that it adds up into the billions of dollars. This is a good quote. I like this quote because he's talking about somebody on a motorcycle being able to get there faster. And that's what we're talking about here. It's all about speed. The high frequency traders are faster so they can run ahead 
and buy and sell. Now that front running, like I said, is just one of the many strategies they use. Some of the strategies aren't as bad as others, but front running is just straight up stealing. So it's you versus the machines. The vast majority of, um, traders are at the mercy of high frequency traders. There's no final thoughts on this one. It just sucks. <laughs> uh, but my final thoughts instead, I just wanted to talk about, um, I meet people on occasion who want to do, um, short-term trading or day trading. You've heard of day trading. You probably know somebody who's doing it yourself. I just wanted to caution anybody who wanted to do day trading because the markets are rigged against you. Most day traders above 90% of short-term traders lose money. It is extremely difficult because you're not playing the same game. As a retail trader, you're playing a completely different game than what other people are playing than what the high frequency traders are playing. It's extremely difficult to make money. Most people lose money and people who are not careful lose a lot of money, dangerous, life-changing amounts of money. So play it safe. And if you are going to do that, you know, I, I'm not trying to give advice because it's not like I'm an expert, but I'm just cautioning you, um, after doing research on this episode, uh, it is very scary. And I do see people, I've known people to get caught up in different types of trading, whether it's options trading or day trading or whatever, thinking that they're going to get rich. Maybe they read a book, maybe they watched a YouTube video and they get excited at the prospect of being able to make money themselves rather than having to work for a boss. The vast majority of them lose. So just be very, very careful. And if you are going to do this kind of stuff, only use the amount of money that you're willing to lose and will not be life changing. All right. Well, that's all I've got for you this week. Um, I guess until next time, uh, if you enjoyed the show, you could really help us out by suggesting the show to your friends and giving us a good review wherever you listen to podcasts until next time. Keep it strange.